Well, LeBron James, uh, LeBron James, who I, you know, I'm, I'm, I have been a fan of uh, as a basketball player anyway, he had remained conspicuously silent about the whole China thing up until last night. And then finally he decided to open up and share some thoughts about it. Um, and, and listen, we use words like amazing way too often uh, and, and so much so that I think the word has lost all meaning. But his response to the controversy with China and the NBA, and it, it, it really is amazing for a number of reasons. So right off the bat here, I want to play this clip for you of um, what LeBron James said last night. And it is, uh, I, it, it's, well, just, just watch. We, we all talk about this freedom of speech. Yes, we all do have freedom of speech. But at times, there are ramifications for the negative that can happen um, when you're not thinking about others and only, you're only thinking about yourself. So um, I don't believe, uh, I don't want to get into a, a, word, a, a word or sentence uh, feud with Daryl, um, with Daryl uh, Morey, but I believe he wasn't educated on, on, on the situation at hand. And, um, and he spoke. And uh, so many people uh, could have been harmed, uh, not only financially, but physically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, so just be careful what we, what we tweet and we say and what we do, even though, yes, we do have freedom of speech, but there can be uh, a lot of negative that comes with that too. All right. Uh, so, so there you go. Now, now, this is sort of beside the point, but what is a, he said he doesn't want to have a word, or, I think I heard him right. He said he did, I, I don't want to have a word or sentence feud with, uh, with Daryl Morey. Uh, he doesn't want to get into a word or sentence feud. Daryl Morey is the assistant coach of, uh, 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 in Houston who originally sent a tweet supporting the pro-democracy protesters in, in China, um, but LeBron wants to avoid a word feud. So he doesn't want to play Scrabble with, with Daryl is what he's saying. I don't even know what that means. Um, but that's not the headline here, I suppose. The headline is everything else he said, which we'll get to in just one minute. But first, a word from Brickhouse. You know, have you ever wondered why so many Americans are sick, unhealthy, overweight? Uh, it's it's obviously we hear about it on the news all the time. It's obviously one of the big problems we have in our in our culture today. Between the food supply and a sedentary lifestyle, Americans are in the worst shape they've ever been, and that's the truth. That's why the team of on-staff physicians at Brickhouse Nutrition created Field of Greens. Field of Greens is an easy way for you to add fruits and vegetables to your daily routine without spending hours in the produce section, hiring a home chef, taking um, or taking cheap supplements or anything like that. And, and also there's the expense of, um, now I know especially for me, because we've got kids, and so you want to have produce, you want to have fruit and vegetables and everything available for everybody, but it's just... You spend all that money on produce, and especially if you have kids in the house, within 30 minutes, it feels like all the produce you bought is gone. And then you have to go and spend and mortgage your house again to buy more produce. Field of Greens solves that problem. Field of Greens is made with real USDA organic fruits and vegetables. It also helps to boost your immunity uh, using antioxidants and assists with digestive help, with prebiotics and probiotics. It's like having a doctor and nutritionist right in your kitchen. One scoop delivers a full serving of fruits and vegetables. You just drop it a cup of water, uh, stir it up, and, and you're done. Uh, and, and that's it. It's also great for smoothies. You can drink it however you want. Bottom line, this is real food. It's not extracts. This is real, actual food. You will look better. You will feel better. Go to BrickHouseWalsh.com and get 15% off your first order just for trying it out with the promo code Walsh. That's BrickHouseWalsh.com, promo code Walsh. Okay, so... LeBron, uh, while trying to avoid a word and sentence feud, 
Uh, is that why he was rambling incoherently? So as to avoid forming a complete sentence? That way you don't have a, a, a sentence feud? I don't know. But LeBron says that coming out in support of democracy and freedom in communist China is a sign that you're not educated. He's not educated. He hasn't been educated on the wonders of communism. Or he hasn't been re-educated, I suppose, is what he, what he means to say. And he cautions that, you know, uh, exercising your free speech can have ramifications. Sorry, what he actually said was, there are ramifications for the negative that can happen, as opposed to the ramifications for the positive that can happen. There are ramifications for the negative that can happen. And remember, LeBron James is the one telling the rest of us to get educated. Okay. Um, LeBron also says that Moray's uh, pro-freedom stance um, caused a lot of harm. Financial harm, of course. He He mentioned that first because that's what this is really all about, but also emotional and spiritual harm. LeBron is emotionally and spiritually harmed by the people in China who don't want to be oppressed. Basically, what LeBron is saying is, is uh, to those folks is, is, hey guys, you're really hurting my feelings here. You're really hurting my feelings. Why don't you think about me, is the question. And I'm trying to sell shoes over here, and you guys are whining about oppression. It's just, my, my, you're harming my spirit, bro. My spirit is totally harmed right now. Then uh, LeBron sent some follow-up tweets after that um, little powwow with the reporters. Uh, and, and he said, here's one of his tweets. He said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Okay, so it sounds like he's, I guess he's seen the light and is, oh wait, no, sorry, that, sorry, I, I, I'm mistaken. That, uh, no, that's a tweet that he sent last year. Okay, he sent that last year unrelated to any of this. Last year, he was saying, you can't have injustice anywhere, it harms justice everywhere. Um, but he seems to have changed his mind, I guess, on, on the issue of injustice. He's now, before he was, he was anti-injustice, and now he's sort of pro-injustice. And he's saying, hey, you know what? Injustice isn't so bad. Maybe there's something to be said for it. Injustice is underrated. That's his position now. Um, Now, here's what LeBron really tweeted last night. He said, let me clear up the confusion. I do not believe there was any consideration for the consequences and ramifications of the tweet. I'm not discussing the substance. Others can talk about that. My team in this league just went through a difficult week. I think people need to understand what a tweet or statement can do to others. And I believe nobody stopped and considered what would happen. Could have waited a week to send it. Now, when I first read this, you know, I read that first sentence, uh, let me clear up the confusion. And, and I thought he was going to do some damage control and kind of backpedal a little bit where he's saying, okay, let me clear up the confusion. And you think, oh, okay, well, now he's going to. But then, no, you keep reading and, and, uh, and oh, my Lord, he's still complaining about the tweet. Dear God, he's still going on about this tweet. He's, he's sticking with it. And now he wants us to feel sorry for the NBA because the league went through a difficult week. We just had a really difficult week. You guys don't understand. Oh, you did, LeBron? You had a difficult week? Well, let me, let me tell you what um, oppressed, uh, the oppressed citizens of China are going through. Let me tell you a little bit about their week. The dictator of China yesterday said that, well, the quote-unquote president of China, um, big, big scare quotes around that, he, he said that... Um, People who are, tr- who are trying to separate China, i.e. those who want to be free, he says that they will, quote, perish with their bodies smashed and bones ground to powder. 
That's, that's a direct quote from, from this guy. And the great thing is the news of, uh, of that quote, that statement from the dictator of China, uh, came out just minutes after LeBron had, had, uh, had himself come out and backed communism in China. But this is what the oppressed masses in China are dealing with. Um, this is their tough week. This is their tough year, their tough life. Um, they might get their bones ground to powder if they try to resist oppression. LeBron, on the other way, other, on the other hand, has been annoyed by some questions by reporters. So, you know, it's bones ground to powder on one hand, annoyed by questions on the other. It's a tomato-tomato kind of situation, I suppose. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you the thing that 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 is is most amazing about all this. I said it was amazing. Here's what's amazing. This is really amazing to me. LeBron's statement to reporters, his tweets, all of it, um, he he had, it's been a week, right? It's been a week of this whole discussion. So he had a week, he had an entire week to come up with a tactful, intelligent, uh, uh, good, ethical response. Now, now, it would be nice if some of these guys would have some guts and they would have just come out immediately and, uh, and, and, and put their foot down and said, you know, here's the deal. LeBron didn't want to do that um, because he wants to be more diplomatic or something. At least that, that's, what, that's what I assumed. Is that what he hadn't said anything yet? He's, he's trying to come up with how he's going to navigate this. And, you know, that's what you assume. And then a week later, this is is what he says this is what he came up with now you know that he was he, he must have sat down with his people over the last week his pr team and everything and they were talking about how do you handle this what do you say At, you know you're the biggest star in the league everyone's looking to you to see what you're going to say let's come up with something good for you to say something that kind of walks the line and everything and so they sat down and this is what they came up with this for him to say that of all things. So th- I guess they said, hey, you know, y- you should go in there. And and I-, I know what you should say. His team, this is his PR team, I assume. They said, LeBron, what you need to do, here's 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 what we came up with. This is this is why you're paying us. This is why you're paying us $6,000 an hour. Uh, what you need to do is, is you need to go in and say that you have been spiritually hurt by all of the calls for freedom in China. Now, yeah, that's what you need to do. You, it's It spiritually hurts you. That's, yes, that's it. I am I am flabbergasted by that. I am literally flabbergasted. Uh, I my flabber has never been so gasted. Frankly, it's just I I the it's it's not just the cowardice. Okay, we get the cowardice of it. It's also just the being so totally out of touch. Like you don't understand how you're coming across to everybody else. Although the cowardice is really the most disgusting thing, of course, and you see that. Um, courage is is something that's just in very short supply in our culture. And a lot of people get credit for being courageous and taking courageous stands on things when really there's no courage involved. Like we talked about last week, in order for it to be courage, okay, for you to take a really courageous stance means that you're putting something on the line. It means that it means that you know you are you are potentially sacrificing something. It means that you are um you know, you you could lose something by taking whatever stand you're taking. That's that's courage, and that's why you know for for these guys to come out and complain about Trump 
or whatever. That's there's there's no courage in that. Now I'm not. I have never been one of those shut up and dribble types. Um, I've never been one of those who, who thought that well athletes should never chime in about politics and should never give their opinion. No, I mean these guys have a platform. If they want to use it, if they want to use it to express their points of view, then they can do that. Um, this whole idea that and it kind of annoys me too sometimes when. You've got people saying to athletes, ah, shut up and stop talking about politics. Well, you talk about politics. Okay, whatever your job is, I'm sure, that whatever you do for a living, I'm sure you, it's, it doesn't include talking politics, yet you still talk politics, don't you? So they can do it too. You know, you can't sit there and tell them to shut up. I mean, they can tell you to shut up. How you'd feel about that? Um, so I've never had a problem with that. But all of this, this stuff with China has just exposed how fraudulent they are. You know, um, and, you know, this idea that they're going to use their platform. Yeah, you want to use your platform to take a stand. I'm in favor of that. As long as you do it consistently. Now, you use your platform to take a stand. Sometimes you're going to take a stand I disagree with. Okay, it's America. We do have free speech. But now's your chance to use your platform to take a stand that is really meaningful and really important, um, and that will require some courage because, yeah, you could lose. You could lose. You're not going to lose much. Okay, your life's not on the line. You're still going to be rich at the end of it. Even if you sell less shoes, and even if the if the NBA loses some money, you're all still going to be millionaires at the end of it. But yeah, you do. You're you are putting a little bit on the line, and they're not even willing to do that because when it comes down to it, a lot of people just are not willing to make any sacrifice whatsoever. They'll say anything and take any stand up until the moment when they're required to make the smallest little sacrifice, and then all of a sudden it's, oh, no, never mind. Just uh, completely disgraceful and shameful across the board, but not surprising in the least bit. Okay, I don't want to be a broken record, um, but, uh, you know, as we, we talked about my man Christopher Columbus yesterday, my good buddy Columbus, but I had to mention this. Predictably, um, statues of Christopher Columbus were vandalized yesterday on Columbus Day, which I think we all saw coming. And this happened in several cities around the country. Here's a, let me give you a, uh, I'll show you a, a shot of, of what they did in Providence. Here's a picture of that. So they've got red paint all over the statue with a message that says, stop celebrating genocide. Now, uh, I know there's no room for actual facts in this discussion, okay, uh, when we talk about Columbus committing genocide. I realize that the people who throw paint on a statue have probably never read even one page of one book about this subject. I very much doubt that they've sat down and said, let me actually research the history of Columbus, his voyages, what actually happened. Let me research it for myself. Uh, I realize that these people, the kinds of people who would throw paint on a statue, they're getting their information from internet memes. So I understand that. So to try and correct them in the midst of their hissy fit is sort of pointless. But then again, I spend my life trying to pointlessly correct stupid people who can't be reasoned with, so why stop now? And so I will say, no, Columbus did not commit genocide, okay? Um, That claim is absurd on its face. It's not true, not at all. Columbus was not genocidal. Uh, it 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 is tragically true that a huge percentage of the native population died as a result of the European settlers, but almost all of them died by disease, okay? And disease brought accidentally, not intentionally. And that's that's an important point here. Um, 
the diseases. Now, sometimes you'll hear from people who 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 even think that the diseases were spread intentionally. Well, they couldn't have done that even if they wanted to, because back in the you know the 15th and 16th century, people didn't understand how diseases were spread in the first place. You know, spreading diseases by germs was not something that people understood. It'd be another 250, 300 years before the germ theory of disease was formulated. So to call the accidental spreading of disease genocide is just ridiculous and factually inaccurate. So it just is not true. Now, did the Europeans engage in slavery? Yes. Did they they intentionally kill people? Yes. Were they violent? Yes. All all of that is true. But to say that uh, Christopher Columbus himself was genocidal is just a factually incorrect statement, and that's all there is to it. But what I what I what I keep having to say about this in general is, uh, yes, we can acknowledge and uh, we can acknowledge that the evil, bad things that were done by people in the past, we can do that, and we I think we have done that. I think everyone understands that the European settlers, in, some of them engaged in, in tro- atrocities and horrible things happened, and some of them were bad people. I th- I, th- I think we have you know, fully and and probably sufficiently acknowledge that. And I, I don't think anyone denies it, right? So I, I, I think I think that's that's all that's that's sort of been covered. Okay, good. And 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 that's fine. But we also have to, you know, this whole thing of judging historical people, uh, especially people that lived centuries ago, 500 years ago or more, by this, by modern standards, is so absurd. And the problem is, when you do that, if you're going to do that, and this is what I think people don't understand, if you if you're going to judge historical people by modern standards, then here's the result: every single person, without exception, okay, every single person who existed anywhere on Earth at any point up until about I don't know 50 years ago will be a bigot by our standards today. If we are taking modern standards and applying it to historical people, then all of them, we have to to basically write off all of them, all of our ancestors. It doesn't matter where you live, what your race is, religion doesn't matter. All of our ancestors were all scumbag bigots, uh, all of them across the board. And that's, that's the conclusion we come to. Now, if we realize that there's something wrong with that conclusion, you know, Yes, our ancestors uh, did bad things. They had views that were that were uh, incorrect. We, they had views that we find uh, even reprehensible today. If we realize that, but the, at the same time we say to ourselves, "Well, but we can't." What are we going to say that the entire world was populated, but there was just nothing good about them? They were all horrible. That doesn't make any sense. Not only that, but that is a, that is, on top of being a, an absurd view, it's also incredibly arrogant and egotistical. Um, you know, talk about, I think it was C.S. Lewis talked about chronological, maybe it was G.K. Chesterton, one of them, one of those guys, talked about chronological snobbery and, and this idea that, well, because we're the most recent people to exist, we're, we're, we are so much better than everyone who existed before us. Um, and because we can, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see their flaws. We can't see our own flaws, but we can see theirs as we look back in time. So that's, it's, it's chronological snobbery and it's BS to do that. Um, I think we have to come up with a more nuanced perspective and not a perspective that excuses things that were obviously evil and wrong. So Europeans who just slaughtered Native Americans, and that did happen, obviously that's evil and wrong. And they knew it too at the time. 
Um, it's not like uh, people in history had, had no concept of right versus wrong. That's not the point. But they did live in a different time. And he, he, here are the main things. Okay, here, here, I, here are the main differences I think we have to keep in mind when we look and analyze um, uh, events in history. The first is that people who lived a long time ago, um, they did not have the same compunctions about violence that we do today. Now, again, I'm trying to look for a more nuanced perspective here. So you can't, my point is not that every violent thing they did was fine because they didn't know, they didn't know any better. That's not the point. It's just that in our modern society, we tend to see violence as just objectively wrong. You know, we say things like violence is never a way to solve a problem or whatever. Uh, our ancestors didn't feel that way. That's not how they saw it. And, and they saw violence as a perfectly legitimate way to sometimes solve a problem. And I would say that they weren't necessarily wrong about that. Now, the violence that, that they used you know, in certain situations was wrong, so they applied that incorrectly in, in some cases, in many cases. But I think that we're not exactly always correct that, that violence is always wrong. There, of course, there are situations where, where violence is okay. I think, I think you know, maybe our ancestors were, were too far on one end of that spectrum um, too, too, uh, sometimes too eager to settle problems through violence, whereas we've gone too far in the other direction with this idea that it's never okay, there's never any situation, it's totally wrong all the time. I think that that's, that's, um, that is a, a sort of ridiculous view as well. But that's the first thing we have to keep in mind, okay? It's, it's, a, it's a cultural fact. They did not quite have the same compunctions about violence that we do today. The second thing, and this is, this is, really important, is that our ancestors did not have this concept of universal human equality. We have that concept today. Our ancestors did not. So if you had, if you had said to someone in the 14th century, for example, um, all human beings are equal, they're all exactly, they are all worth the same, they're all equal in, 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 in moral worth and dignity, Probably doesn't matter who you're talking to. Uh, doesn't matter what country you're in, what culture, what race you're, you're saying that to. That would have seemed, it wouldn't have meant anything to them. It would have seemed like it just, it, it would not have processed. Because that is a, the idea of universal human equality is very modern. In fact, it's so modern. Think about, think about this, that, um, you know, uh, uh all humans are, are created equal, endowed by their creator, so on and so forth. Even when that was written into the Declaration of Independence, as we know, it was so far ahead of its time that the men who came up with this idea and who wrote that down, they themselves didn't even fully apply it because, of course, they still, you know, Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. Washington, uh, uh, George Washington owned slaves. So, uh, in fact, from when that was written, to when it would actually be fully enacted in our country, that was, you know, that's like 180, 190 years or something. It'd be, it'd be a very long time from when that was originally conceived of and written down to when we actually lived in a country where everybody was legally equal. Um, so it is a very, again, it's a very modern concept. And that's just not a concept that people, you know, 300, 400, 500, 600, 700 years ago had. And that's one of the reasons why slavery was a, an acceptable 
practiced institution all across the world in nearly every culture and civilization. They, it, was just a, it was just a way of life. It's just what you did. You know, in many Indian cultures, you fought a war with another tribe, you beat them, you took some of them as slaves. It's just what you did. It's just, that's just how it was. Um, it's hard for us to, to wrap our heads around that now or understand that, but that's the fact. And so now that we have, we live in a more peaceful time, partly because, at least in the West, we can afford to be more peaceful. And that's the third difference. So there's actually, there's actually three, I think. There's the, uh, didn't have the same compunction about violence, didn't have this concept of universal human equality. Um, also, they didn't live in a world that was settled like we do now. You know, and our world, of course, is not completely settled. But uh, it certainly is more than it has been at any other point in history. Um, they lived at a time where, you know, the lines had not been completely drawn. And so people fought over land. It's just happened all across the globe. And if you wanted land that you didn't have, you fought for it. It's just, it's, that's, the way the, that's the way the world worked at the time. Which maybe is one of the reasons why they didn't have that compunction about violence. Because they couldn't afford to. And the other thing is, if, if you had land, you realized that you would have to fight to protect it. And you didn't have, you, you couldn't spend time, you know, uh, feeling sorry for yourself about that. You just, you had to fight to protect what you had. And if you couldn't, then you weren't going to keep it. And it's very easy for us now, especially in the West. And it's not like this for everybody in the world, of course. But for us in the West, as we live in this luxurious, comfortable world, for us, you know, we're living this comfortable lifestyle. And we have the benefits now of hindsight. And we, we were born into a world where the truth of, for instance, the equal worth and dignity of all human beings has been, had been passed down to us and taught to us from childhood. We didn't come up with that. We didn't fight for it. We didn't, you know, we didn't earn that. It was just we were told that from children. So we were born into that world. And it's very easy for us to look back at our ancestors um, now and, and just write them all off. But I think that's a mistake to do. And um, even the bad things that they did, I think we have to, it's not excusing it, but it is seeing it within its context. All right, uh, let's go to this. So um, Pharrell is on the cover of GQ, and uh, they're calling it the new masculinity issue. And it's all about how guys like Pharrell are redefining masculinity. Here's what the new masculinity looks like. Take a look at this. Yes, the new masculinity looks like a jacket made for an octopus who is also a crossing guard. That's the new masculinity. A crossing guard octopus. Um, and then here's some more of the new masculinity, some more, some more pictures you see there of what masculinity looks like now, apparently. Um, I mean, it, it looks like he just dove into the clearance bin at Goodwill and uh, just a random assortment of ugly clothing that don't fit. He looks like my daughter playing dress up. That's what, especially the one with the with the huge uh, jacket, the huge leopard print jacket. That's the new masculinity. The new masculinity is a six year old girl playing dress up. So when my when my six year old daughter plays dress up, she she is uh, she is now the the example of of masculinity for men everywhere. Apparently, 
Now, again, I know there's no point, as I said, uh, in introducing logic into, into this discussion, but I can't help but point out that these efforts to redefine masculinity make no sense in light of the fact that the very concept of manhood is supposedly subjective and effectively meaningless now. If it doesn't really mean anything to be a man, then what's the point of coming up with a new masculinity? In other words, uh, in order for a biological female to identify as a man, which is a thing now that she can do, doesn't manhood then have to be masculine in order for that to make sense? Isn't the whole damn point of identifying as a man, uh, you know, it, 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 isn't that the whole point of it? Isn't that effectively what you're saying? In other words, aren't you basically saying, you say, I identify as a man. What you're really saying is, I identify as a masculine person. If masculinity is now feminine, then what does it mean for a woman to identify as a man? So she identifies as a man, but men are like women. So she identifies as a man who's essentially a woman. She's a man who's a woman who's a man who's a woman. It just doesn't make sense. So this is the problem. That's the contradiction. The whole concept of identifying as a man or identifying as a woman depends on those things being distinct and defined. You know, it really depends on men being masculine and women being feminine. But if we're tearing down masculinity and femininity, then everyone might as well stay their own genders because we're all just sort of meeting in the middle anyway, right? We're all just getting together, meeting in the middle, swapping clothes, and it's a free-for-all. And then in that case... If everything is fluid and it's all sort of, hey, it's whatever, you're a woman, you're, then, then okay, if that's what it is, you, you kind of have to choose is the point. You have to, it, 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 we're either doing that or we're doing a thing where, uh, you know, it, it, being a man is something objective and definable, and, uh, and, but sometimes a woman could identify as one. And, you know, so you could, you could do one or the other, but you, you can't really do both. Or here's a better idea. We could do neither of those things and just men are men, women are women, and uh, you're you're never going to cross from one to the other. That's also an option. All right. uh, Let's go to to emails. MattWalshow at gmail.com. MattWalshow at gmail.com. This is from Stephen. Says, uh, hey, Matt, my name is Stephen, and my parents uh, spanked me growing up. I'm 20 and don't have kids yet, so I'd like to point out that I contradict the case you had explained yesterday where people think fondly on their spankings because they spank their own kids. As a kid, I hated spankings. I was far more deviant than my siblings and got significantly more spankings because of it. However, I am grateful that my parents spanked because it did teach me discipline and ultimately taught me to respect my father in a way that I don't know I would have if they uh, used other disciplinary methods. My parents also never hit out of anger. If I was in trouble, they'd send me to my room, and before they spanked, they'd go pray in their room to make sure they were making the right decision. And then they talk through what, what I did wrong, uh, and afterwards they'd have me pray for forgiveness. I may be an outlier in that my parents never once hit me out of anger, but I just thought your argument didn't take into perspective an experience like mine, where I don't look back fondly, but be, uh, but uh, could easily be misunderstood as such. Yeah, well, that's no. I, I think my my argument did take into account exactly your situation, Stephen. That's what I was saying is that um, I think that although although we don't spank our kids, it's not we just decided that's not right for our family. I think if you're if you are as a parent doing it not out of anger, not because you're unleashing your frustration, not because you're just pissed off, but you're doing it, you know, you're taking as I said kind of a business-like approach. And this is also important, which I didn't talk about yesterday, but that you have spanking as a 
penalty for certain things. And the child knows ahead of time that that is the penalty for that thing, whatever it is. Okay. And then in that case, then that takes the anger out of it even more. It's just, okay, you, that was the penalty. You did it. Now here's, here's the punishment. Um, and they, they might not like it as a kid, but at some level they understand that, okay, I did this thing and that's a penalty. So if spanking is being approached that way, then I think it's, it's, it can be a perfectly valid and effective form of discipline. It's certainly not abuse. I disagree with the people who say that all forms of spanking are abuse. I just, I don't, I, I think that that's silly even. I don't agree with that. My only, so that's, that's fine, Steve. It sounds like your, your situation was what we're talking about here, a valid form of discipline. Um, I just wonder of all the parents who do spank their kids. And of course, any parent you talk to, they're going to say that they never spank in anger. And you know, I, I don't think any parent's going to come out and say, oh yeah, I, I hit my kid all the time because I'm, because I'm ticked off. No parent's going to say that, but I do wonder, um, of all the parents who spank their kids as a form of discipline, what percentage of them? do it sometimes or even regularly out of anger. And I suspect that it's probably a rather large percentage. And in the case of those parents, they are physically abusing their kids. They may not feel like it. You know, I, I, you never want to stop and say to yourself, oh my gosh, I am a physical abuser of my children. But uh, they are, you know. Um, and I'm not saying a, a parent who one time spanked their kid out of anger uh, I'm not saying that they are terrible parent and they should lose their kids, or, you know, or their kids are ruined for life or anything. I'm not saying that. I'm just, but it is a serious. That's a serious issue, um, and uh, that's a line that you just never want to cross. Um, okay, this is. Uh, let's see here. This is from. Uh, Steve says, Matt, really enjoy your show and everything on Daily Wire. Shapiro brings intellect to bear, Clavin, humor, and you, a lot of heart and a lot of dad. Uh, okay, so I don't have intellect or humor. I have heart. That, that feels like, I, Steve, I, I, I know you meant that as a compliment. It feels like a backhanded compliment a little bit. <laughs> well, Shapiro's a smart one. Clavin's really funny. Uh, you got heart. You, get, you, you put in the effort, kid. You're doing well. No, um, I appreciate it, though. Thank you. This is not so much a question for the mailbag as it is a comment on one of today's questions, specifically the one regarding priestly celibacy. As a convert to Catholicism from evangelical Protestantism, I had similar views regarding celibacy. To me, it seemed too much of a burden to be placed on men that might otherwise have chosen the vocation. Since then, my opinions have become more nuanced. I will certainly agree that allowing priests to marry won't solve the pedophilia problem. Pedophiles are attracted to any situation where they have authority, trust, and privacy with young boys. Scout leaders, athletic coaches, church youth group leaders, these are all fertile fields for pedophiles. But you make the case that desire to have a family is a noble and natural thing, and that priestly celibacy is an unnecessary denial of those basic and good instincts. What I have come to believe, however, is that celibacy is not a burden. It is a grace that God grants those called to the priesthood. The Apostle Paul even says that it would be better for his followers if they were more like him, celibate, but it is better to marry than to burn with lust, I assume. He makes it clear that a married man cares for the needs of his family, but a celibate priest is free to take care of the things of God. After all, Christianity is a religion of self-denial. Jesus tells us that if we are to follow him, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross. That a priest is called to celibacy is a gift and an opportunity to mortify the flesh in the service of a higher spiritual goal. In spite of the paucity of vocations, I would rather have fewer committed priests than lower the bar to get the numbers up. Um... I think that's a perfectly valid argument. That, that certainly is the argument in favor of it. I think you eloquently expressed it. Um, 
And uh, I think it's a powerful argument in many ways. And I see, I can, I, I see it from, I can see that perspective. That, that's the perspective that I had. I just, um, I just, there are two things that have to, we have to take into account. Uh, one is the reality of the situation. So we could say, yeah, it would, it's great if priests can carry this cross and, and, and exhibit this kind of self-control and on top of all the other benefits. Now, the thing about, you know, if you're a priest, if you're a pastor, you've got your flock, that's really a full-time job. And so if, if you've got your own family, then of course your family has to come first and you have to put your flock second. One of the advantages of having celibate priests is that you focus 100% on your, um, on your priestly duties. And I think that's, a, that's, a, that's maybe the, in some, even, though, even though that's the practical argument, I think maybe that's the best argument for priestly celibacy because it's a it's you know you talk to um, people in Protestant denominations for example and they'll tell you that this is this can be a real problem and this is why it's a real issue in some Protestant churches Protestant churches where uh, the pastors you know they have problems in their own families and with their marriages because they're being torn by these two demands um, and so I, I think that practically speaking that's a very good reason to have celibate priests. But again, now we run up against the reality. And the reality is that a very large percentage, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's clear that a very large percentage of priests are simply not living up to that. And um, so do we just charge on ahead and say, yeah, you know, they'll figure it out eventually? Or do we say, maybe it's time to consider making a change? Um, and then the other part of it is, like I said yesterday, I, I really feel like the desire to have a family and, and have a wife is good and natural and noble. I don't think it's any lesser. I don't think it's a lesser vocation than celibacy at all. I think that they're just different. And there's a place for both, I suppose. But um we are ruling out, as I said yesterday, you, you, the, the, the Catholic Church is excluding, is in principle ruling out men who have a very strong, healthy, natural, and noble desire to have a wife and a family. That, that is a whole category of men that we're saying, nope, you're, we don't have a place for you in the priesthood. And I'm just wondering if that's, in the end, uh, a good strategy. I think maybe it's not. I think maybe those men have something to offer. Even though there are those very real practical difficulties, as I mentioned, I still think those men have something to offer and, and maybe we should welcome them. But um, there are, you know, there's, there's a, I still, I don't know, I'm, I'm a little torn on it, I guess, as you can see. From Carly, this is, hi, Matt, I have a simple question. What is your new daughter's name? I don't think you've mentioned it. Well, thank you, Carly, for asking that question. Um, funny story, actually. Our daughter's name, as it stands right now, is Emma Grace. Okay, first, first name, Emma Grace. But here's the great thing. All through my wife's pregnancy, okay, we debated this. And um, I liked Emma as the first name, Grace as the middle my wife wanted Emma Grace as the whole first name, like to do a two-name first name deal. And I told her again and again and again, I made the point that if we do that, 
we're going to have to spend our whole lives clarifying to everyone that Emma Grace is her first name. You know, one, it's the whole first name, two names. Not first and middle, for two name, first name. Every time we're at an appointment, we're anywhere, you know, someone asks us her, her name, every time we're going to have to go, they're going to say, what's her name? We're going to say, Emma Grace. Is that first and middle? Or no, 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 first name. Is that one word or two? Uh, two words. Capital E and G. Yeah, cap- it's on our whole lives and her whole life. We're going to have to have this conversation over and over and over and over again. Millions of times, literally. We will have consigned her to a life of explaining her name to people. And that is, there are some people who live a life like that. And if you have a name, you know, if you have a name that's confusing, confusing spelling, whatever, for any, whatever reason, you know what it's like. Your whole life, you have to explain your name. And that is the life of a two-named person. She will wander the countryside, ostracized, abandoned by society, while people point their fingers at her and say, here comes the two-name. Get out of here, two-namer. No two names allowed. I mean, that's what's going to happen. And my wife said, oh, stop it. It'll be fine. Well, guess what? A week after she was born, a week after she was born, a week, seven days, my wife came to me and said, man, this is really getting annoying after having to explain the name thing to people. And I said, ha, I told you so. I told you. This is the, this is the greatest I told you so moment of my life. This is amazing because that, we're going to have to change her name now, legally. A week after, after she was born, it beca- and this is this is amazing. I get this, but of course, my wife tries to act like uh, like I hadn't been arguing this all time. When she came to me and, and said, "Oh, this is getting annoying," she didn't say she didn't preface it with, uh, "Oh, you, turns out you were right." She just she said it as if as if no one had brought this up before, trying to underplay, which I understand. Okay, because she can't let me have this I told you so moment. It's too good. It's just strategically in a marriage, you you can't let your spouse have one like this because you're always looking for the I told you so, um, which is a healthy thing to do in a marriage, by the way. It's a little competition. People always say, oh, never say I told you so. I disagree. It's just it's you got to keep the competitive spirit alive in a marriage, I think. Um, it's a little bit of the chess match that goes on. And so, you know, you stack your chips and and now I'm mixing metaphors, but you get it. So, um, anyway, but so she, she doesn't want to give it to me. Um, but we are going to have to officially change her name. Uh, I think we are going to change. So it it, it was Emma Grace's first name. We're going to officially change it. Um, so to, and make it so Grace is the middle name. And, uh, and no matter how my wife tries to downplay it, the fact remains that for the rest of our lives, I will have this story about the week that our daughter spent with a different name than the one she ended up with and how it was changed because I was right and I told you so. We might as well change her name. to I think her middle name should be I told you so. Emma, I told you so Walsh. That's my, I think that's what I'm going to do. That's going to be her name now. So this is, uh, it's fantastic, but I'm, I'm, I'm really happy about it. It's just, uh, you know, especially at, look, everyone knows not to be stereotypical, but, but in a marriage the, the husband doesn't get as many of the I told you so's. So when, when you get one as a husband, you got to grab onto that one. Just don't let it go, okay? I'm not saying you throw it in her face all the time. Just put it in a, put it in a, put it in a satchel and just kind of keep it in the closet somewhere. Just nice and safe. Maybe store it, store it in a safe, actually, a lockbox. And every once in a while, when you need to pull it out, you pull it out and you just say, see, told, remember the I told you so. All right, um... That's my, don't take my marriage advice, folks. Don't take it. Uh, I will, uh, we'll leave it there. Thanks everybody for watching. Godspeed. 
If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, and The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Robert Sterling, associate producer Alexia Garcia Del Rio, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens, edited by Donovan Fowler. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Hey, everybody. It's Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. You know, some people are depressed because the American Republic is collapsing, the end of days is approaching, and the moon has turned to blood. But on The Andrew Claven Show, that's where the fun just gets started. So come on over to The Andrew Claven Show and laugh your way through the apocalypse with me, Andrew Claven. <laughs>